0: evening, Kat. How are you? Good evening, Shelley. I'm good. How are you going? I'm good. I'm very excited because we've got Sue Dyson. Sue's. it's the morning there, isn't it, in the UK? It is, yes. So good morning. Good morning, Sue. Hi. Um, We just want to say we're so honoured to have you on. You're uh, such a tremendous influence and someone that's taught me a lot uh, about soundness issues, especially especially identifying them in the ridden horse. Um, So I'd like to ask you if you could give a two-minute talk, an elevator talk, of discussing who you are and do it in in two minutes, what would you say?
1: Well, um, I've been a veterinarian for quite a long time, uh, but I started as a rider, and I don't think I could possibly have done what I have done had I not been a rider. And I was fortunate enough to produce horses from novice level up to advanced three-day event standard and also national top level show jumping and worked with a lot of different trainers and dealers and had a lot of exposure to lots of different types of horses and having looked after my own horses and observed their behavior I was very well aware even before I ever went to vet school that Mm. behavior and soundness were linked Uh, I was a late starter going to vet school in that it was only halfway through my final year of school that I decided I thought I might be an equine vet. Uh, And I went to vet school purely with the view of being an equine veterinarian, not realizing at the time that in UK, um, as a woman, this was going to be a bit of a challenge. Mm. Um, But I was extraordinarily fortunate in that through various people I met during vet school that I was advised to go to the United States. So I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go to the United States. And I spent two years at the University of Pennsylvania, New Bolton Center. And just by osmosis, being exposed to world experts at that time, I just sucked in information. And I was really fortunate that I met other really influential people at that time who had an enormous impact on my subsequent career. And then I came back to the UK. Um, and was riding competitively as well as being a veterinarian and they were both mutually complementary because yeah. announcers say that Sue is, a, is a, an equine veterinarian working in Newmarket and that would attract clients and it was a kind of win-win situation and I've always been curious, I always wanted to make observations, document observations, ask questions um, and that's where we are today really. Oh, that's
0: uh, that's really interesting. I think that is so crucial that you actually had that practical experience, that that riding background of producing, uh, of riding a lot, lot of different horses, high level stuff. That actual practical experience of working with a horse that you then combined with your veterinary knowledge.
1: Absolutely, and I have ridden so many clients' horses uh, yes. and felt how they feel to the rider and felt the difference as to how they feel when you've removed their pain by the use of nerve yeah. blocks. And that is kind of an amazing experience, I think. And I think for people that don't ride, veterinarians that don't ride, mm-hmm. they, have it, they can't understand some of the yeah. concepts that to me, are just so important.
0: Yeah, and that's so funny. That's what I was going to ask you about because I did hear uh, stories of you went Sue Dyson actually got on your horse and rode it when the assessment. So that's actually true. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I wow. learned so much from doing that. Yeah, wow. There's
2: not many vets that I know of that would get on someone's horse and do a lameness <laughs> exam. And I often, I don't think we even do
1: labour exam for it in. A lot of the
2: time we do
1: uh, in hand. I think that that is a ubiquitous problem around the world. Um, And it is such an important thing for me because we know we've got evidence. We've published evidence that there are lots of horses that appear non-lame in hand and on the lunge that are lame. When they're ridden so for me that's an absolutely fundamentally crucial part of the investigation and i hear so many clients being frustrated because they say i felt i had a problem i took my horse to the vet they saw it trot up in hand they did some flexion tests they saw it on the lunge and they said there's nothing wrong with it it must be behavior or a training related problem and and this is you hear this story time and time and time again
0: yeah, no, it's, it's very frustrating is that, you know, if the horse isn't really hopping lame, like something that's very obvious, that it can get missed. Like I know personally working with behavior cases, um, and even once that I thought I turned around, it was like years later, it came to a head, you know, what it was actually became clinically evident, even though it was actually evident before on their resistance or their evasion but then going through this time now where I'm recommending people take their horse to the vet, but sometimes they're having to go five or six times or I'm having to be very picky about what vet they go to. But a lot of the time they just get sent back going, can't find anything wrong, can't find anything wrong. And I think the thing is, is just because you can't find anything doesn't mean there is nothing there. <laughs> you know, it's no, just-
1: absolutely, absolutely. And I think in all fairness, veterinarians during their training are mm. taught how to recognize an overt falling lameness and overt high yeah. lameness. Yes. They're not taught talk- about the subtleties. They're not taught about how to evaluate a ridden horse. And so I don't think that they are adequately taught to do the job they're ultimately being asked to do. Yeah, and And therefore we need to turn this around somehow. We have yeah. to educate equine veterinarians better. And if you were a human athlete, Mm. You wouldn't go to your local GP if you had a problem. No. (laughs) You would consult a sports medicine specialist.
0: Very true. I think
1: we have to go through the same kind of route with horses. But I put a caveat on that because there are a number of so-called sports medicine specialists in the equine world who are very good at injecting joints.
2: Yes. But they don't
1: necessarily do a good lameless workup. Yeah. Um, Those are poles apart as far as I'm concerned. We yeah, have to true. get the diagnosis before we can develop a treatment and management plan.
0: Yeah, because a lot of the symptoms are not the root cause. It's a secondary kind of problem. So mm-hmm. how I found out about you was coming across the ridden horse ethogram. That was outstanding for me like you created you've created a tool an assessment tool to help with the identification this is this is what I so respect about this is this is you doing something about it actually producing a tool that can be used by veterinarians or even just putting which I also massively respect just putting on the table that a written examination is important as part of soundness so
2: Sorry, Sorry, for I, me, I, I think it's also important that we have the research and we have the general yes. horse population, and we've got this bridge between the two so we can actually bring research to the industry.
0: Yeah, so what we'd Thank love you. to hear, we'd love to hear the background of how the ridden horse ethergram came about.
1: Well, it came about through frustration, really. Frustration on three different counts. I was uh, really struggling with seeing client after client who would say to me, well, I bought this horse as a five-year-old. It seemed weak at the time. Uh, I didn't really want to sustain canter on the left rein. Mm-hmm. Here we are two years later, and they're still struggling with the same problem. And nobody has intimated that it might be a pain-related problem. And I believe fundamentally that any horse who's trained appropriately should rapidly improve in its way of going, unless there is an underlying Uh, pain related problem. So that was um, reason number one. Reason number two was I was dealing with a high level event horse who came to me for an opinion. It had many problems. Um, I felt that its prognosis was poor for return to upper level eventing. It was an insured horse and the veterinarian acting on behalf of the insurance company insisted that this horse Go through not one set of treatments, but probably four or five. And during this period, this horse was deteriorating progressively. And I was sending video recordings to the insurance company and to the vet advising the insurance company. And I just couldn't understand why they could not face reality that this horse had all these problems, was not responding to treatment, was not going to respond to treatment. And this made me realize that the the veterinary profession don't recognize pain. And then the final was when I submitted a paper, which was about um, a condition when horses hop when they're ridden in front. And I'm absolutely sure that this is a pain-related problem. Mm -hmm. But the peer reviewers for the publication said they didn't believe it was pain-related. And I had submitted video recordings and photographs to accompany the paper. And this was, I thought, these people cannot recognize pain. This is a fundamental problem with the veterinary profession. And so that instigated thinking, I must do something about it. And then I had a chance encounter with Dr. Janine Berger, who is an equine veterinarian based in California. She's Austrian in origin, um, a trained uh, riding teacher, Mm -hmm. um, but also qualified specifically in veterinary behavior. And I talked about it with her and she said, of course, these horses are in pain. We must we must collectively do something about it. So to meet somebody who was yeah. a behaviour expert was just magical, really, because that enabled us to work together and do something which subsequently got the approval of the behaviour world yeah. before we it to the equine world. Oh, and I really? think that, that was fundamentally really important that it would, got the kind of saying, this is solid science, this is robust stuff, uh, and therefore we can now take it to the equine industry, who were very um, reluctant to take the stuff on board originally. And they said, you're you're being crazy, Sue, this is ridiculous. Um, But we kept going, and we kept doing more and more studies, which gave more and more validity to what we had published initially. So we initially published the ethogram um, describing how we had developed it. And then we validated that by doing more studies when we took lame horses Mm. clinically based, took away their pain, their behaviours went away. So it's showing that there was a causal relationship between the behaviours and pain. Um, And I think there's so much evidence there now. Nobody can really deny
0: the relationship. Yeah, and and I loved how you retested it. I'm really interested in how you came up with what to look for. So you must have had a bit of a list and then what happened is you started correlating what was being observed with certain lamenesses. So how did you come up with that original list of what are we looking for?
1: Well, Janine and I sat down in a hotel room in California and looked at uh, video recordings of a very large number of horses, both lame horses and non-lame horses, and we came up with a list of 117 different things that we were observing yeah, wow. that may or may not be pain related yeah and then we tested those 117 behaviors with um 13 non-lame horses video recordings of them yeah. and 25 lame horses and yeah. within that subset of horses we were able to show that that uh there were 24 behaviors, mm. the majority of which were at least 10 times more likely to be seen in yeah. a lame horse than a non lame horse. There were other observations as well that we can also add in, which we do think are pain related, yeah but those 24 were the key ones. Yeah. And then we retested those 24 and said, is there a statistically significant difference between yeah. the lame horses and the non lame horses? And indeed, there was. Yeah. Um, and we were able to demonstrate that. Although each individual behaviour may have a variety of different causes, that a threshold value of eight of the 24 behaviours is highly likely to reflect the presence of musculoskeletal pain, although a small number of horses will show that are lame will show less than eight behaviours. But eight or more is a very, very strong indicator that something's not right.
0: Yeah, though I, I loved how you did that. I love that bit of research of how you got there. Um, by coming up with a list, identifying the most, I suppose there would be the ones that were the probably the easiest to identify maybe, and then the most clinically significant out of those, and then how many of those are present in the horses that are, that are lame, and actually working on some some statistics of that that's really beautiful beautiful bit of research yeah so i can see that's really interesting how you went through the behavioralist acceptance of that and then into the into the um, veterinary profession from that because i can see the research is slightly different for the behavioralist to get um like the observations from that and then going into veterinary science yeah can i ask you though the hopping into can- into trot, is that what the, yeah. you're looking at? That ho- I see that all the time, Sue. What is that?
1: Because <laughs> I um, believe it's
0: something, something behind how the horse doesn't want to push off on its, di- its diagonal or something like that.
1: Um, I think there are a variety of different scenarios. You will see some horses that are trotting in hand and as they turn around to come back again, as they go from walk to trot, they hop into trot because they're yes. not pushing enough from behind. So this yeah. is a way of gathering momentum. But the hopping type lameness that we see when they're ridden is rather different. Oh, okay. Um, in that it it feels to the rider as though the horse wants to break to canter. Yes. And it can be yes. very episodic, or it can be more continuous in some horses. May only appear on one rein, or sometimes both reins. Yes. And although it can be related to lower fallen pain, so the foot, for example. Yeah. um in these horses, which have this syndrome, which we call idiopathic hopping type lameness, yeah, um, it is related to caudal neck pain, um, specifically mm. nerve root pain. Yeah, um, wow. and and those horses, you can block the nerve, block them all the way up the limb, and they don't get better. In fact, most of them get worse, um, wow. and they often they often have. Uh, other clinical signs that are suggestive of neck-related pain as well.
0: Yeah, wow, because I see that a lot. And the interesting thing is, most owners don't even think it's a thing. And I'm going no, That's no, no. A
1: no, thing. no, no. <laughs> many, many of them, quite a few of them, they present because they're not going well, and they may have some concurrent hind limb lameness, which is yeah. uh, probably the, the main pr- component. And you ask them, well, does the horse try to break to canter with you. And it's oh, yes, but I've never, Bible. it's normal for him. He's always done that. Yeah. So they've been present for a long time and they haven't recognised it as a problem. Yeah.
2: So is it treatable?
1: Um, it's difficult to treat. Yeah. Um, there is a new surgical uh, technique that has been developed by somebody in Germany where um, they actually enlarge the intervertebral foramen through which the nerve root exits from the vertebral canal um, through the outside of the neck. Um, And that has been successful in some horses, yes. But Mm. without surgery, it's difficult to manage if that is the primary problem. Now, some horses will also show such behavior um, if they've got a saddle with very tight tree points, yeah, so you
2: can't
1: not, take yeah. a say everything is going to be for the same reason you have to rule out everything else before you say it is this specific neck related problem
0: yeah interesting yeah another can i ask you just as often because that's a spark and my question that i've got in my mind that i'm currently dealing with a couple of cases of cold back horses that are cold back that when they're initially saddled they will get very you can say they're very stressed um, and then once that stress is gone, they'll get on and they'll be worked. And, and the diagnosis from the vet is like they're cold backed and it's just like, there's got to be something more to that. One case in the past that I've had actually had, um, actually had on Xo finally x-rayed its back and it had, it had, uh, had an injury that actually had fractured its ribs. So that was an answer to it. So the cold backed suit. The cold back diagnosis, which is just a symptom and not the cause. Do you have any insight into this?
1: Um, I think it could be multifactorial. I think it often reflects anticipation of discomfort, Mm. but it is not a specific sign for where the discomfort might be. Yeah. And it's certainly true to say that there are some upper-level competition horses who will show such behaviour and they're quite difficult to mount. Potentially, um, but they perform fantastically. Um, so I don't think it necessarily means ongoing pain, but it may be a reflection of previous pain, or there may be some low-grade pain which doesn't adversely influence performance. Yeah, just, this is this is another. I don't think it's normal, and I no. and I think some horses can be managed. It's so, mm. for example um they're put on the horse walker before they're tacked up they're tacked yeah. up really slowly they're then walked in hand or they're put on the lunge before they got on mm. and you can bypass
0: those clinical signs. Mm. Hmm, interesting.
2: <laughs> now <laughs> and, uh, it makes more questions for me than answers it's like because <laughs> then I, I come into it I'm like well is there an ethical line like what is okay what's not okay
1: Well, I think that's where the ethogram comes into play in that for me, if the horse is showing eight or more of the 24 behaviours, that is an indication to me that there definitely is something wrong, which needs to be investigated. And even if the score is six or seven, it's a warning sign to me that something's not right. And I advise clients that they use it as a monitoring tool that they, every month, for example, apply the ethogram and if it starts at two and stays at two, that's great. But if it starts to progressively increase, that's a sign that something's not right. Um, And it's as simple as that. Um, And and we we also know um, that from other studies that we've done using the ethogram in a competition scenario, that those horses which score higher on the ethogram do less well in whatever type of competition it is. So there's clearly a relationship between discomfort and uh, the quality of performance. And I think if we can just persuade the horse-owning public that that there is potentially a win-win situation, if they, they identify the pain and we can then diagnose and treat and manage that, then we can potentially... Uh, improve performance, uh, right. improve trainability, rideability, safety—all um, sorts of things which are influential. And, and, and I think that many riders and perhaps some trainers have never really ridden a truly sound horse, so they don't know yeah. what a sound horse should feel like, how it should behave, and how it should respond to training. Yeah, um, and and this is a. Uh, Kind of a an equestrian myth that horses are bad, um, yeah. or it's normal for horses to put their ears back or swish their tails. Yeah, um, rather than thinking those behaviours are not normal, and why is the horse doing that?
0: Yeah, it's like spookiness, spookiness, and and horses that shy and all that behaviour. Which I can show. It's just like you make the horse feel more comfortable. That goes away. That's just symptomatic. They're not. Are they? They they will perceive the world negatively when their bodies, when they're when they're in a state of alarm and they feel uncomfortable. You take that away, and they they're very easy going. Like as I just get amazed all the time. I can sit. The more I learn about horses, the more I realize they're incredibly gentle, highly trainable, easy to get on animals. That even when they're in the worst state, they're still restraining themselves ninety five percent. So they always because
1: they are they are inherently prey animals so they yeah. have learned to disguise discomfort yeah. Um, yeah. and which they do in all sorts of different ways but with respect to movement they shorten their step lengths they have yeah. reduced item impulsion and engagement they stiffen the back um yeah. they have a less animated gait all a way of protecting themselves not to show lameness yeah. And then they are so stoical they're too stoical for their own good in that we ask them to do something and by and large they will do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They don't
1: protest enough in some respects.
2: Nice.
1: No. And so we can I ask back a little bit?
2: Yeah. Um, you said Sue, uh, so about using the ethogram to monitor sort of behaviour as a tool. Can you explain, would you be looking at those behaviours over a ride or would you be looking at those behaviours over a month or sort of how are you using that?
1: Well, I would say we apply the ethogram watching the horse ridden um, for about 10 minutes. So I'm talking about a 10-minute evaluation every month or so. Yeah, cool. Um, So we advise that the horses are warmed up and then they are effectively put through their paces. Now yeah. I think it's really important that the horse works sufficiently hard um, in order to demonstrate the behaviours. Because a horse with low grade problems will be perfectly content trotting around the periphery of the arena or the periphery of a field in working trot. But if, for example, it's a Grand Prix dressage horse, you need to see it do all its movements because it may only be in the collected movements that it yeah. starts to show discomfort. Um, so the horse needs to be seen doing everything that it needs to do for its job Mm. and if it's a lower level horse we have to make it do uh, multiple transitions we have to see the horse um, in rising trot doing 10 meter diameter circles to the left and to the right back to back because that is biomechanically quite a um, a demanding movement and Mm. it's under those circumstances that the behaviors may be most obvious and lameness may be most obvious and I think it's really important to recognize that canter is just as important as trot because there are some horses that are comfortable in trot but are very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in canter and historically we've blamed canter problems as being training problems without thinking that there may be a pain-related problem and I think a lot of the canter problems are pain-related so if the horse doesn't want to do flying changes, or if it becomes disunited repeatedly, mm. or if it breaks repeatedly, yeah. then those are all features that reflect discomfort. They are not generally training problems.
0: Yeah. Well that's why we actually call our podcast canotherapy. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a term that I coined uh just from working with horses. So people present me horses. And I'll work them on the ground. And the thing that tells me the most about them is the trot canter transition. I can see a lot from that, and I can see them change when that starts smoothing out or losing its tension or reactiveness or reluctance. I know that the horse is getting in a better place. So, you know, I had said so I'm going to give the horse a bit of canter therapy, but it is something that is so that is commonly missed from many. Oh, absolutely, workers. absolutely.
1: I mean, I don't think. Anybody teaches at vet school that you should be looking at canter. Yeah. Um, and I think I watch lots and lots of training sessions and I never hear coaches say, Well, you've got a four beat canter, that might be yeah. pain in you. <laughs> but yeah. they just say, push on a bit more or <laughs> use stronger legacy, or use stronger more longer spurs.
0: So can I ask you, Sue, how has the Ridden Horse ethogram been utilised by the profession? Like is it being taken up? Is it being taught at universities? What do you know has been happening with the tool since you created it?
1: Um, sadly, I don't think it's yet being taught at universities, although I have gone to various UK yeah. universities and at the, at the request of the students because the mm-hmm. students are very receptive. So they run, for example, clinical clubs, and I've gone and spoken there. Um, uh, The problem is that the undergraduate curriculum is so crowded. Yes. Um, Yeah. But fundamentally, I think it should be taught. Mm. Um, There has been a growing acceptance within the veterinary profession uh, around the world. Um, It is taking time, but I expected that. But I think that there is slow progress. But that has to come along with also the recognition of the importance of seeing horses ridden. So yeah. it's um, a double pong thing. And then also um, the, the veterinarians uh, have also got to know how to investigate further. Um, with, and I don't think they necessarily have the tools in their toolkit to do that at the moment because they don't know what they're doing a lot of the time. They can deal with the overtly lame horse, yeah. but they're not used to dealing with the horse that doesn't push properly from behind yeah. um, and is throwing its head about. And, and I think that that is a is a big big problem. And the the whole situation will be only improved when there is improved postgraduate training yeah. of the equine so they've yeah. got to accept that they need more knowledge and we have to provide them with tools to yeah. give them that knowledge.
0: Yeah, very true. Now, you've very excitedly you've come out with a book, Harmonious Horsemanship. Um, can you tell us about this?
1: Um, uh, yes, There's this is written in conjunction with a physiotherapist, Sue Palmer, who mm-hmm. is a very like-minded individual. Um, and uh, I think that it was very good that we were able to do this in a collaborative way because we could yeah. push each other. Um, the book describes how the ethogram was developed and, and how to use it with masses of different um, examples of abnormal behavior, but also some happy looking horses as well. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, it also sure. includes um, quite a few contributions from owners describing yeah. their journeys. The fact that they had a horse with a problem, they had a gut feeling that there was something not right, and then they went through a very protracted investigation with umpteen visits to the vets with lots and lots of frustration, treatment of gastric ulcers, that sort of thing, until ultimately a diagnosis was reached. Um, So I think that that makes it very relatable to many horse owners. And then there's also a chapter which discusses um, what you should expect from a veterinary examination into this type of horse problem. Um, And then the final chapter is all about the many myths that there are in the horse world and what they actually mean or don't mean. Um, So, for example, I've got a chestnut mare. This chestnut mare has always been difficult, but then she's a chestnut mare. But yeah. there's nothing to, in, in anywhere to suggest that chestnut mares are any different to bay mares or bay geldings.
0: Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's the myth. Oh, well, that's really exciting. So um, is that book published yet? Is it available to purchase yet? Um, It is, yes, yes. There is a physical copy mm-hmm. or
1: there is um, a digital copy available. Yes, because yeah, no, I really... Uh,
0: I really think this should be on everyone's because what Kat and I are trying to do is to promote an understanding of horse owners to be the people that are keeping the lookout for this type of thing, to be the really take ownership of their horse literally and its health and soundness and to have as many um, observations as possible but that they're aware of um, to draw attention to it. So I really think this should be on everyone's um bookshelf and of course those professionals out there especially coaches and trainers like me cat hoof care professionals yeah so you can I think the the,
1: the book is written such that it is designed to be taken up by anybody be they a a horse rider or a professional with any within any sphere of the equine world
0: Mm. yeah no that's excellent now Sue You've also just had a film come out. <laughs> I need, because when I last heard from you when we were organizing this podcast, you were in America, you were at a film festival, and your film even made an award. I need to know about this film.
1: Well, the, the film actually was released um, just over a year ago. It's The 24 Behaviors of the Ridden Horse in Pain, shifting the paradigm of how we see lameness. And yeah. this tells a story. So it tells a story about a show jumping horse, Galina, and her rider, Lauren, who is mm. a very charismatic young lady who really cares passionately about her horse, but has gone through a long series of um, treatments by a variety of different veterinarians, her trainer telling it's, it's her fault that the horse doesn't want to go. And ultimately um, she finds us And we go through the routine, what I regard as routine investigation, which includes nerve blocks and looking at saddle fit. Uh, And this horse had both forelimb nameless and hindlimb nameless and an ill-fitting saddle. But once we had uh, addressed all those issues by nerve blocks and changing the saddle, the horse's performance was transformed. Yes. Um, So the story, this is an educational film, but told by a story and Mm. bringing in. The background science as well. So I think it is um, a very emotive film. It is very watchable. It's 35 minutes mm. duration. And even non horse people um, can understand what it all means. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I've, that- really,
0: I've, I've actually seen that film. I loved it. And the thing that I loved most about it that was most revealing is seeing the horse before and after nerve blocks. The, the change in the horse, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And I see that every day because that's how I work with horses yeah. every day. Um, mm. And I don't think enough people anywhere, particularly trainers, have can really, really know how a horse can be transformed by yeah. nerve blocks. Yeah. Um, and it's
0: just so fundamentally important. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it's it's striking, and that that film is really good. So, what was the name of it again, Sue? The film, Cat um, just wants to write it down. <laughs> Probably so, everyone else listening. The twenty-four behaviors of the ridden horse in pain,
1: mm. shifting
0: the paradigm of how we see lameness. Yeah, no, I've actually seen that because I I went on to Equitopia. I did the course. You've actually yeah, got yeah. a course, and that was that, that was outstanding. That was the best value for money. Um, they even help me. Like, there's things that I have been able to pick just through observation. Um, but you've added a lot more. And I think the most, the biggest one was the head tilt. Right. <laughs> the head tilt, because it's always like a head tilt. Oh, they're not bending through. But now you've actually identified that's actually be discomfort through the spine. Yeah. Can
2: you go into a bit of detail, Sue? What does a lameness exam look like for you? Yes. What are you looking for? Like, what's your process i know it's going to be individual depending on the horse but just to give owners a bit of an idea of what they should be expecting
1: well first of all i listen very carefully to what the owner has to say because i want to know about what their problems are what they feel so I ask them to talk, but I also have a, a long list of questions in my mind that I'm going to ask them. So, for example, do they have even rein tension? Does the horse feel similar when they sit on the left and right diagonals in rising trot? Mm. And then I'm going to just look at the horse, look at its muscle development, look at its posture, look at its muscle symmetry and say, is this horse muscled appropriately for the job that it's supposed to be doing? And then I'm going to uh, feel the horse, palpate the horse in a very systematic way, starting at the head and working all the way through the horse from front to back, including mm-hmm. the neck and the back and the pelvic region. And I do that with every horse so that I'm familiarizing myself every with every horse that I look at as to how a horse should feel normally, which mm-hmm. then makes the things that are abnormal jump out at you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I'm going to see the horse walk in hand, uh, turn in small circles, both directions, trot in hand, and then perform flexion tests. And all the time I'm making observations um, and documenting what I observe as well, because otherwise I think you tend to miss things. Your memory can't remember everything, so I try and write everything down that's abnormal. Um, And then I evaluate the horse on the lunge. Yeah. And then, unless the horse is too lame to be ridden, I will see it ridden, because yeah. there are so many things that can be apparent ridden that are not apparent either in hand or on the lunge. And, for example, a horse may be presented for poor performance evaluation. It may show a very low grade right falling in lameness on the lunge on a firm surface. Yes. Uh, and you could say, well, I could nerve block that, but that may have be of no relevance to the problem that the rider is experiencing when they're yeah. riding a horse on normal surfaces. Yeah. And therefore, I think it's hugely yeah. important not to get over influenced by what you see under odd circumstances. Lunging on a firm surface is not what a horse normally does. Yeah. But we need to see it do what it should normally do. And so that's going to include ridden exercise. And then at that stage, I will have a pretty good idea which are the problem areas Mm. and then i have to establish with as much certainty as possible where the pain is coming from so then nerve blocks are essential in order Mm. to desensitize parts of the limb in a logical sequential manner to identify the source of pain and then having identified the source of the pain then i can use imaging techniques radiography Mm. ultrasonography and if necessary, MRI or CT, to identify what is the cause of the pain and then address thinking about treatment and management, bearing in mind that the tack fit and the way in which the rider rides and sits may also be influential and therefore for the best result we have to address everything. So we're going to bring in uh, not only my recommendations about management but perhaps a physio for the rider, yeah. Um, a Affair for the horse saddle fitter, so it's going to be a, a team approach to with respect to subsequent management.
0: Yeah, so it's when you block, you block from the feet up. Is that when you meant by that?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So you, you, for example, you can um, put local anesthetic solution over the nerves to innovate the foot um, if the foot is the source of pain. Then once you desensitize the foot, the lameness should go away. But mm. if the lameness persists, then you know that it's not the foot that's the cause yeah. of the pain; it's
0: higher up. Um, it's what higher about that, that rule of thumb gets thrown around that seventy percent of lameness is in the horse's feet? Do you agree um, with that?
1: I think with respect to the front feet, um, yeah, yeah. then yes, probably true. Yeah. Um, it's not; it's not true behind at all. Yeah, okay. In, in front, it probably is. Yes
0: yes oh thanks for that sue now thank you so much for your time can we You're just <laughs> can we just go through your book where do we get it from harmonious horsemanship besides typing um, it into google is it being yeah, helpful?
1: Well, well if you type it into google it comes up at the top every single time <laughs> so that, that's the simplest way and yep. it can take you to um the harmonious horsemanship website or it can take you to troubadour who's the uh, publisher or it can take you to amazon who also market it so any any of those routes very yeah. easy
0: all right and if we want to watch the film we'll just type in 24 um 24 behaviors and that will come up it's oh, it's free to
1: view on youtube Ah, oh, brilliant oh,
0: okay now if people want to know more about you or get in contact with you like just say if there might be a university out there or a postgraduate program which is keen to have this maybe included in their program. Um, how would they get in contact with you, Sue?
1: Um, they can email me and my email is sue.dyson at Aol.com. Um, you can also contact me via um the website 24 horsebehaviorsorg dot org, um which is run by Train with Trust, but um is absolutely focused on, on this work
0: yeah wow okay Sue, thank you so much for your time um we're so grateful we appreciate you you're. so much okay. okay
1: you're very very welcome it's been a, a pleasure
0: okay we'll say goodbye see you later Bye. okay thank you for listening to this episode of canter therapy you can find us on facebook on canter therapy podcast and if you'd like to know more about me, Dr. Shelley Appleton, you can find out more about me on my website, calmwillingconfidenthorses.com.au. I'm on social media, Facebook, Dr. Shelley Appleton, calm, willing, confident horses.
2: And I'm Kat. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Friends of Park Equine Services or Instagram at Friends of Park. If you would like to leave us a rating where you're listening to this podcast, we'd appreciate it. And...